And our ministry really is all about doing apologetics. It's about equipping Christians to defend their faith, to stand on God's word, to give it all captive, make it obedient to Christ, and proclaim the gospel in an effective manner. And the point of doing apologetics is not simply about winning a debate about any given issue, whether it's the age of the earth or issues of sexuality or gender or climate change, but rather what we're doing is defending biblical authority to proclaim the gospel effectively and really be the salt and light that God has called us to be. And that is our passion over an interest in Genesis. And we do this in a bunch of different ways. We have these two main attractions that we do within the ministry. First is the Creation Museum. Now, both of these are located over in northern Kentucky, right below Cincinnati. It's a 75,000 square foot walk through biblical history. And as we walk you through biblical history, we are answering the skeptical questions of this age. If the Bible is true, what about the age of the earth? What about carbon-14 dating? What about uh, who did Cain marry? How did dinosaurs, what about dinosaurs in the Bible? How did Noah get all those animals onto the ark? What about the rock layers and fossils? Aren't they millions of years old? Doesn't that disprove the Bible and so forth? And we answer those questions, and here's what we're doing. We're showing people a simple fundamental truth, and that is this. The Bible is true. The Bible is right about everything. It's right about history. It's right about morality and sexuality. It's right about salvation found in Christ alone. Put your faith in him. And that really is a fundamental message of who we are. And that's why when you're at the Ark Encounter and at the Creation Museum, you'll hear the gospel over and over and over again, no matter where you go. We're proclaiming biblical authority, proclaiming the good news of Christ. And probably what we're most well-known for as a ministry is the Ark Encounter, the life-size replica of Noah's Ark. And both these attractions are incredible attractions. They're awesome. I'm biased. I get that. But if you ever get a chance to go, you really should take it. They are absolutely wonderful and really encouraging to stand on biblical authority. But it's a life-size replica of Noah's Ark, three levels, uh, so many exhibits as you go through, answering questions, kangaroos. You can ride a camel. Who doesn't want to ride a camel? I mean, come on. Uh, it's kind of bumpy, but anyway. And then, again, same message. The Bible's right about everything. Put your faith in Christ. And what I want to do this morning, and it's my privilege to do so, is really share with you why we believe this matters so much, that why Genesis is so relevant to the issues in our culture today and so much of the compromise we see happening in much of the church today. And really trace it back to Christians and their need to stand on biblical authority from the beginning. And I would say we're passionate because we've noticed something that I'm sure you have noticed, and that is this, that our nation is going in the wrong direction. Have you noticed that here in California? <laughs> just a little bit, right? And we see it in Kentucky too, right? But we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. And it's not just America. It's the entire Western world, world where we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. But the fact that's happening here in America is pretty astounding. Because if you think about it, we are the most Christianized nation the world has ever seen. I mean, just pause for a moment. We have more Christian colleges and more Christian seminaries than anybody else in the world. We have more churches than anybody else in the world. We have over 500,000 churches in America. We have more Christian bookstores and radio stations and television stations. Think about it. We have more Christian resources than any other nation has ever had in all of history. Isn't that a wild thought? But for all those Christian resources, are we becoming more or less Christian every day? And what's the answer? Man, less and rapidly so. Newsweek, way back in 2009, had this as their cover. The decline and fall of Christian America. And inside, they make a very good observation. They said the presence in this sense, it's less about the death of God, and it's more about the birth of many gods. 
Here's what they're basically saying. We used to be one nation under God, but now we're one nation under many gods. Isn't that great? See how tolerant we are? But in truth, at a foundational level, we need to realize there are actually only two religions. People say just two, just two. Here they are. Either God's word is your authority and you build your thinking from there. Option two, reject God's word. What are you left with? Man's ideas in some way, shape, or form as your ultimate authority. Those are your two foundational religions. Either you put your faith in God's word or you put your faith in man's word. We all got faith, just where do you put it? And what we've seen in our culture has been this foundational shift away from God's word to, much of, to be the foundation to much of our cultural thinking to now man's word has become the ultimate authority. Man now determines what is truth. And that's why, of course, truth is relative in our culture today because each person can decide their own truth. And that's why we as a culture look a whole lot like Judges 21-25. When there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And doesn't that sound like the America we live in today? And as a result, we're seeing the chaos of this more relativism sweep through our culture, ripping our culture apart, capturing generations of kids today, distorting their thinking. And we could give the headlines to really back this up. We see the headlines literally everywhere. And as Christians, we understand this. We see it happening. We know we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. Our question is why. And I think the way we really think about this question is this way. Why isn't the church, why aren't Christians influencing the culture like we used to years ago? You think back to like Billy Graham's day. And here's what we suggest. So often today, Christians are not influencing the culture. Why? Because in so many cases, friends, the culture is influencing the church. So many Christians are compromising God's word in different areas. We're undermining biblical authority. As a result, we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. That what has taken place is an attack on the word of God. Yes, outside the church, that is true, but also inside the church. And that's been catastrophic. And the fact that God's word is under attack, that's nothing new, right? God's word has been under attack since Genesis chapter 3. When the devil said to Eve, did God really say? And notice what he was doing, getting Eve to question God's word, to doubt God's word, to reject God's word. And the method was so effective, he's used the same method ever since. Different forms, but same basic attack. And one of the primary ways he's doing this today is through the teaching of things like evolution, eight men, big bang, and especially millions of years, using those sort of secular atheistic ideas to get so many people today to watch this, question God's word, doubt God's word, to reject God's word. Same basic attack with a different stealth twist. Today, he's attacking the Bible's history to undermine the Bible's authority, to undermine the gospel rooted in that authority. Because here's the bottom line. If you cannot trust the Bible's history, why trust it about anything else? If you can't believe Genesis 1-1, why trust John 3-16? If you can't trust the Bible's history, why trust it about morality, sexuality, gender, or salvation? 
Either all of God's word is authoritative and true or none of it is. And that is a fundamental issue. It's an issue of biblical authority. And even though many Christians haven't realized this, it's interesting, the secularists, the atheists, the antagonistic atheists, they understand that a great way to undermine biblical authority is to attack that history, undermine the authority and the gospel in that authority. I'll give you an example of this. I'm going to show you a clip of this guy. His name is Lawrence Krauss, the former professor of physics over at Arizona State University. This is back from 2009. He's kind of like America's version of Richard Dawkins. But won't you hear what he says, hear the reaction of his students, and as you do, bear in mind, it's just a good example of how and where the attack is primarily happening today on biblical authority in our culture. The amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Okay? And, and anyway. He's great. I'm never sure which is worse, his blasphemous statement or the reaction of his students. But notice what he's basically saying. Forget Jesus. He's not your savior, God. Why? He's not your creator, God. You're not here because God made you like the Bible says. You're here because stars exploded. Basic sentiment is this. The Bible's wrong about the beginning. Why trust it anywhere else? It's been a powerful attack by the enemy. The same guy said later on at a different conference that change is always one generation away. So he said, if we can plant the seeds of doubt in our children, which sounds a whole lot like Genesis chapter 3, religion, and by that he really means Christianity, will go away in a generation, or at least largely go away. And that's what I think we have an obligation to do. Thank goodness he's neutral. He's not right, and nobody can be. We'll come back to that here in a moment, but he is right about one thing. Change is always one generation away. We see it happening. We see it happening in God's word numerous times, and we see it happening right before our very eyes. According to numerous studies, now for really decades, an average of around two-thirds of kids today who grew up in active Christian homes walk away from the church by the time they reach college age, most of whom today do not return. Two-thirds. That's a massive exodus from the church. And so we want to figure out why and how to rightly respond. So we did a research project with America's Research Group where we interviewed a 1,000 of these 20-somethings at the time, now 30-somethings, who have grown up in the church but have since walked away to figure out what's happening, how to respond. Let me just show you two of the major findings. First, when we asked those who had walked away, if you don't believe, when did you first have doubts? And please notice something, that it was not college. Isn't that what we tend to think? Our kids seem to be fine while they're with us throughout middle school and high school. I mean, they're crazy in middle school. Amen, parents, and they're crazy in high school. But they're still with us, going to church. They're involved. They seem to be on the same page. And then they go to the secular university, and that's when they walk away. Guys like Lawrence Krauss and the whole atmosphere pulls them away. And that's, oh, that's when they walk away, right? Now, according to research, over 80% of those who walked away had all these doubts, all these questions starting way before college, in middle school, high school, if not before middle school. They had all these questions that were not getting answered, at least not at home and not at church. 
What sort of questions? Well, the same sorts of questions I heard 13 years teaching Bible history in a public school over in Tennessee, working with youth for 20 years in a church in different ways. Questions like if the Bible, questions like this, if the Bible is true, then where did God come from? And then how do you know the Bible is true? And by the way, who did Cain marry? And if we all come from Adam and Eve, how do you explain all the different people groups all around the world? And don't the eight men disprove the notion of one man and one woman from whom we all come? And what about how did Noah get all those animals onto the ark? And where did the water for the flood come from? And where did it go? Aren't the rock layers millions of years old? Doesn't that disprove the Bible? What about dinosaurs in the Bible? Carbon-14 dating, distant starlight. Doesn't that disprove the Bible? What about evolution? That disproves biblical history. Has that disproved the Bible? Isn't the Bible a book of outdated myths and fairy tales written by people who did not know better? And by the way, why is there so much death and suffering in this world hasn't science disproved the Bible <sighs> have you guys heard some of those oh, man. maybe not that fast <laughs> we hear those right because this is primarily where the attack is happening today you see for so many people they think you cannot trust the Bible in this quote-unquote scientific age that's been bombed out by these sorts of ideas but guys, here's the kicker and the gut check for us. They're coming to us for answers. They're saying, hey, Christian mom, dad, grandpa, Christian leader, pastor, Christian friend, if the Bible's true, what about evolution and who became Mary? And what about marriage and sexuality and gender? And what about dinosaurs in the Bible? If the Bible's true, give me some answers on these different questions. And by and large, as Christians, what has been our general response to those sorts of questions now for decades, if not a century or more? It's been something like this. You know what? I don't know about the rock layers or the fossils or even really worry about defining marriage, but don't worry about that stuff. Just trust in Jesus. Now, we want them to trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. But hear me. When we just say that and we ignore their questions, we're ignoring their fundamental question, which is this. Here's what they're really asking. Why should I trust in your Jesus? Because think about it. The message of salvation through Christ, that message comes from where? This book, the Bible. And hey, Christian mom, dad, friend, pastor, if I can't believe what the Bible clearly says over here, why trust it anywhere else? Again, either all of God's word is authoritative and true or none of it is. That is the core issue. And for so many of those who are walking away, they're walking away in their hearts and in their minds before they ever leave physically for college. They're sitting in our pews, in our homes right now, and they're already gone. That's why we entitled the research, or the book with the research, already gone. And then we asked them in the research their reasons for leaving. One of their main reasons for leaving, according to them, was hypocrisy. We said, Okay, I kind of guessed that. But define that for us. What do you mean by hypocrisy? And this is what the majority said on their own. This wasn't multiple choice. They had to write this out. The majority said this. Well, here's what we mean. We grew up in church. And we were told in church that this book, the Bible, is the word of God. Trust all that it says, especially that bit about Jesus. But then they said, we were told later on, in some way, shape, or form, of someone we respected within Christianity, that we as Christians, we don't really have to believe this part of the book. And you can take evolution, eight men, big bang. You can take man's secular ideas, reinterpret this first part. It's not that important. Just be sure you believe the rest of it and you trust in Jesus. And they see it as hypocrisy and rightfully so. Because it is. And because that sort of compromise, we're seeing so many quote-unquote testimonies like this young man's of how I became an atheist. 
I was born into a Christian family and indoctrinated as uh, growing up as a kid. That next year was freshman year of high school, and I started learning about evolution in my biology class. Then uh, that's where I realized I had never seriously questioned or thought about my religious beliefs. So as I learned about evolution and just started thinking philosophically about it, I realized that there couldn't be a god. So I became an atheist. And I'm willing to bet that most of us in this room know someone who would say a similar th thing as that young man. And then with Generation Z, one of the most recent generations, they are more than twice as likely as any previous generation to profess atheism as their worldview. And actually, George Barner uh, categorized them as the first truly post-Christian generation in our culture. We're seeing a mass exodus from the church on so many different levels. And guys, hear me on this. I'm sure that maybe many of you, like myself for the longest time, had the best of intentions when we said, I don't know about that stuff, don't worry about it, trust in Jesus. We had really good intentions but guys, even as Christians, we can have some really good intentions and still get horrific consequences. I know this is a pretty heavy, deep talk for a very early in the morning on a Sunday. So let me give you a lighthearted example of when Christians had good intentions but got bad consequences. Let me show you some bad church bulletin titles I found to illustrate the point just for a little bit of fun. Titles like this one. The peacemaking meeting schedule for today has been canceled due to a conflict. <laughs> Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> How does that work exactly? That's what I want to know. Is that by vote, by committee? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> At the service tonight, the sermon topic will be what is hell. Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> you know that's funny. Come on. I mean, that's funny. And then Barbara remains in the hospital. She's having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Jack's sermons. <laughs> no, good intentions, of course, but bad consequences. And guys, on a serious note, when we compromise God's word with the secular thinking of our day, even with the best of intentions, you will get the worst of consequences. And we also saw in the research that the way we are often teaching the Bible is causing many to struggle with its veracity and its trustworthiness. You say, what do you mean? Also often today when we do Bible studies, especially in our Bible study programs, Sunday school classrooms or whatever, especially with kids, but not just them, we tend to say, hey, today we're going to read this great Bible story. But of course, what does the word story tend to mean in our modern vernacular? Yeah, fairytale, fiction, not true, right? That's not what we mean most likely, but that's what people hear, especially kids. And so they say, oh, we're going to read a great fairy tale, something like the tortoise and the hare, little red riding hood, something with some moral, maybe spiritual truth, but it's not really connected to reality. And then we show our kids pictures like this of Noah's Ark as an overloaded bathtub. And I don't know about you guys, these pictures disturb me. Why? Because look, everybody's happy even though the whole world is being destroyed by a global flood. Doesn't make sense to me. Now, I understand the point of the picture. It's meant to be cute for kids. I have you know, two young kids. I understand that. But kids are very impressionable. You show a kid a picture like this. Does that tell that child, Noah's Ark and Flood, real event in history or fairy tale like the world says? And it just screams fairy tale. 
And we're reinforcing a secular idea whether we mean to or not. And again, for so many people, not just kids, so many people, they got all these questions. They're being bombarded with in our culture today. and They're looking for answers. And for the most part, we're not giving them any. For the most part in the church, in Christianity, in America, throughout the West, really around the world, we are not doing apologetics. We've not equipped ourselves or the coming generations to know what they believe and why. Instead, we just teach them stories. And so where do they go to get the answers? Well, they go to the only other alternative, which will be man's ideas. They go to secular sources, secular textbooks. They go to secular zoos and museums, TV stations. They go to Uncle Google, Wikipedia, TikTok, Lord help them. And they get answers from those sorts of sources. And from those places, they learn about the real history of the universe, evolution, millions of years, which disproves the Bible from their perspective. And really, when they go to those sources, hear me, here's what they're getting. Secular apologetics. They're learning all the reasons the Bible must not be true and can't be trusted. What are they getting at church? Stories. And when you think about it like that, it's not so surprising so many are walking away. And guys, that history in Genesis, it's not a fairy tale. It is real history, and it is really important. And we summarize that history at the ministry with what we call the seven C's of history. And the first four, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, that's Genesis 1 to 11. That is the geological, biological, anthropological, astronomical, real history of the universe that lays the foundation for the last three C's, which is Christ, cross, and consummation, a summary of the gospel. And I like to say these seven C's, they are married and they can't be divorced. A few quick examples. Think about it. Just as it was in the beginning originally with no death and no suffering and no bloodshed and no disease, someday when Christ returns at the consummation, he will make it perfect again. Who's looking forward to that? Amen. The older I get, the more I look forward to it. All right. And then the corruption. Because a real man in real history, our real representative head, he really did sin. We all really do descend from that man. That's why we're sinners by nature and consequently by choice. And we all need saving through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, God, who became flesh and lived the perfect life we could never live, who died on the cross in our place. He paid the perfect, infinite debt we could never pay. Then he rose from the grave, defeating death, doing all we never could, repent and put your faith in him for salvation. And in him alone. But we all have that need of salvation through the last Adam because of the sin of the first Adam, going back to Genesis. And then the catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day, was a righteous, holy, global judgment on man's sin. And there was one way to be saved through the door of the ark. And that's a picture of Christ because there is another global judgment coming. The next time it is by fire for eternity and there's one way to be saved Jesus said I am the door if by me any man enter in he shall be saved John 14 6 Jesus declared I am the way the truth and the life no one gets to the father but by me and then the confusion the tower of Babel I love talking about this one for so many reasons but it reminds us that all people today can trace their family trees back to know his sons and their wives actually Every person who has ever lived in all of human history can trace their family tree back to one man, one woman, Adam and Eve. That means, biblically speaking, how many races are there? Just one, the human race. And again, since we all descend from Adam, that's why we're all sinners. 
and need a saving through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. You see that clear connection to the gospel. But again, if that first part is not true, like the culture is screaming, like much of the church is agreeing, then why should we trust the rest? And some will say, okay, Brian, I mean, I hear you and all that, but come on, man, it's just Genesis. It can't be that important. I would suggest to you that's what the devil would love for you to believe. Because it's interesting. If you trace this out, did you realize that every single biblical doctrine, every single one, is either directly or indirectly founded on that history of Genesis 1 to 11? Every one. A few quick examples. Where do we see the origin and definition of marriage? That's found over in the book of Genesis, right? Chapters 1 to 11. Where do we see the origin of sin and death? That's over in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Why do we practice a seven-day week? Where does that come from? Genesis 1 to 11 and only Genesis, by the way. There is no astronomical measurement for a seven-day week. That only comes from the Bible. So when the atheist uses a seven-day week, they're borrowing from the Bible. How fun is that? Why do we wear clothes? I noticed that you are, and that is good. Amen? <laughs> it goes back to the book of Genesis. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why is he called the last Adam? Why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? It all goes back to the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, the foundational history to all biblical doctrines, either directly or indirectly. If you take away that foundation, the whole structure will collapse. Someone recently joked, they said, hey, if Genesis is so important, then God should have put it closer to the beginning of the book. It's the first book of the Bible for a reason, right? It's the foundation for everything. Let me give you one quick example of a biblical doctrine being attacked by attacking that history in the book of Genesis. I think we can agree that the biblical doctrine of marriage is under assault today. That's really easy to see in our culture. That's intriguing. When Jesus was asked about marriage by the Pharisees, friends, he did something radical. He quoted the Bible as the authority. And he said to the Pharisees, have you not read, translation, don't you guys read your Bible, that he who made them, Adam and Eve, at the beginning, Mark says beginning of creation, made them, not the female, that's how we know the fundamental, there are only two genders, and said, so for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting directly from Genesis 1.27 to 2.24. And he's showing that the doctrine of marriage is based on the biology and the history of Genesis being true. You become one in marriage. Why? Because it's based on the fact that the woman came from the man, like the Bible clearly describes cover to cover. The woman, praise God, did not come from the ape woman. Amen, men, double amen, triple amen, praise God all day for that reality. No, no, she came from the man. And friends, as Christians, we can boldly, yes, lovingly, but also uncompromisingly say that marriage is between one man, one woman for life. Why? Because the God who made marriage, he made it between one man, one woman for life. Friends, God made it. He defines what it is. And we find that in the book of Genesis. But again, if that history is not true and or God's word is not the authority, then why not redefine marriage and make it whatever you want it to be, which is exactly what our culture is doing right now. Which is why some people today are marrying animals, their pets, True story. Some have married 
uh, one, married, one person married an AI robot. One person married uh, furniture. One person married a tree. I think she was trying to branch out. I don't know, but <laughs> it's a true story and a terrible joke. But anyway, but if you abandon God's word, anything goes. And that's what we see happening right now. And I mean, and think about it. We could be here all day on this, but guys, how do we know that every single person, no matter what you look like, where you come from, what your skin shade is, how much money is in your bank account, how good or how bad you sing, how athletic or unathletic you are, that every single person has inherent indelible value because they're made in the image of the living God. We find that in the book of Genesis. How do we know there are only two fundamental genders? That goes back to the book of Genesis. And people will say, but yeah, but I, I don't feel like my gender. How do we understand that? How do we address that biblically? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. The answer is this. Hear me. Disney is wrong. Do not follow your heart. That's a horrible thing to do. It is deceitful and wicked. Your heart is broken by sin. Why do we see the world so wrongly? Why do we see ourselves so wrongly? We've been broken by sin. Sin broke everything. And you don't follow your heart. You follow Christ. And he'll change your heart and give you and let you find your true identity, which is in him and him alone. And again, since we all descend from Adam, that's why we're all sinners and need a saving through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. You see, both Adams, the first and the last, are essential to the gospel. And some will say, okay, Brian, I mean, I hear you and all of that, but then wait a minute. Are you then saying that someone has to believe in a young earth and a, and a literal Adam uh, and a global flood to be a Christian? Is that what you're saying? That's a direct salvation issue? Not at all. What does the Bible say about salvation? The Bible, John 3, 16, right? Great verse for that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him and a young earth and a global flood will be saved. <laughs> Counter to popular belief, Ken Ham does not teach this, neither do we. No, that's from the book of Second Heresies or Third Opinions. I don't know where that comes from, but not the Bible. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So this is not a direct salvation issue, but it is an indirect salvation issue. Because again, where does the message of salvation through Christ come from? It comes from the Word of God. And again, if you can't trust this part over here, why trust it anywhere else? Here's the issue, and you guys know this. Friends, we don't have the right nor the authority to treat God's Word like a buffet. I'll definitely have the chicken and the steak and maybe some sweet potato fries, but not the asparagus or the broccoli or cauliflower. That's just gross. I'll take some of, you know, John 3, 16. Philippians 4, 13 out of context, typically. I saw a coffee mug just the other day, Rabbit Trail, uh, on Facebook. It said, uh, I had on there, I can do all things through Christ through a verse taken out of context. Which is funny and true. But anyway... No, it's either all authoritative or none of it is. And that is the core issue. And that's why it's so important that we as Christians, that we obey, hear me, God's command to give an answer for our faith where the attack is happening today. We are told to contend earnestly for the faith. We are commanded to do so. And I think so many Christians are not doing this. Why? Because we've bought many secular lies. One of those lies is this. They'll say, but you can't use the Bible as a science textbook. You can't do that. Right? You can't use the Bible about science because it's not a science textbook. Our response is, you're right, it's not, praise God, because science textbooks change every year. 
true. But where the Bible touches all science, we can trust it. And here's what the Bible does for us. It gives us the big picture of history to rightly understand things like biology and geology, anthropology, astronomy, etc. It gives us the right understanding of the past that we apply to the evidence in the present. And that is so important because we all live in the present. Right? Right? Raise your hand if you're with me in the present. Just a quick check. <laughs> Whichever way, very good. All right. A tricky question, don't answer out loud unless you really want to, but think about this question. When do fossils exist, past or present? And the answer is, they exist in the present. If they did not, we would not have them. And when you find a bone in the dirt, we've got to realize that bone does not come with a label on it saying, hey, I'm 65 million years old made in Taiwan or China or whatever, all right? They don't come like that. And guys, here's the point. All the evidence any scientist has Secular or Christian, they've got all the same stuff in the present. The same rock layers and the same fossils, the same radioisotopes, the same distant starlight, the same DNA, all observed in the present. But here's the deal. They interpret those things differently in the present and make different guesses about where those things came from, their origin, and thus their age, rooted in their different starting assumptions about the unseen past, rooted in their different worldviews. And here's the key. It's simple but true. If you start with the wrong assumptions, especially about unseen history, you'll likely get the wrong conclusions. And this is why some really, hear me, brilliant, smart, not dumb secular scientists can be so wrong about particular things like the age of the earth and rock layers and dinosaurs. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. Reminded of the story of an elderly gentleman who was sure his wife was going deaf. So one night he sunk up behind about 10 feet away and he whispered, can you hear me, honey? He heard nothing. He got a few feet closer. Can you hear me, honey? Nothing. He got right behind her. Can you hear me, honey? To which she responded, for the third time, yes. <laughs> Somebody will get that later on. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> Wasn't her problem, Right. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And friends, hear me on this. There is no such thing as neutrality. That's another lie many Christians have swallowed. Guys, on every issue, it always comes down to this. Either God is the authority or man's word is in your own mind. Every single time. There is no neutral. Jesus said, either you're with me or you're against. Either you gather with me or you scatter. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is neutral towards God. No, it is hostile towards God. Neutrality doesn't exist. And recognizing that, we as Christians should stand boldly, yes, lovingly, uncompromisingly on God's word. And here's the amazing thing. When you stand on God's word, you've got answers, and they're not that hard. I tell people all the time, you don't need a PhD to defend your faith. If you've got one, good for you. Use it for the glory of God. But what you need to defend your faith is a biblical worldview. Trust God's word from the beginning. You've got answers. You can answer questions that have scared Christians had to death for decades. Questions like, how did Noah get all those animals onto the ark? Atheists will ask this like a mic drop. But if you know God's word, and just to have a biblical worldview, the answer is really not that hard. Go to the biblical text. The ark was huge, over 500 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet tall with three different levels, over a football field and a half in length. Capacity equaled almost 500 semi-trailers. It's a huge floating warehouse. It's a huge boat. When you go to the ark encounter, wear good walking shoes, you're going to need them. It's a lot of ground to cover. 
please hear me. This was not Noah's ark. <laughs> Do me a favor. If you see this picture in one of your kids' books, blow it up. <laughs> anyway. And then the Bible says that God brought to Noah two of each land-dwelling, air-breathing kind. Two of each kind. And the word kind in the Bible, for the most part, is equal to about the family level of modern-day classification. What that means practically is this. Noah did not take 400 pairs of dogs on the ark. He most likely never saw a chihuahua or a poodle in his life. He was a blessed man. He took two of the dog kind, two of the elephant kind, two of the horse kind, two too many of the cat kind, but two of the basic kinds of animals on the ark. And two of the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals according to their kinds fits with no problem on that massive boat. And then we should be connecting the flood to geology. If there was a global flood as described in God's word, we expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid in my water all over the earth. And friends, we find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid in my water all over the earth. Their features are tremendous confirmation of the Bible's historicity. And someone say, but I thought it took a long time to make a rock layer. Not at all. Water, dirt, minerals, right conditions. You can make rock layers really quickly. A few quick examples. Here's a ship's bell encased by rock. Here's a clock in a rock. There's a spark plug in a rock. Those things are not millions of years old. Or you probably know of Mount St. Helens erupting back in 1980. And from that minor eruption by historical standards, it produced rock layers. Huge rock layers. It made these rock layers in hours. Just watch it happen. It made canyons like this one, nicknamed the Mini Grand Canyon, because it's 140th the size of the Grand Canyon with similar features to the Grand Canyon. It made this canyon in nine hours. And someone say, but I thought fossils take a long time to form. Actually, no. Fossils typically need a rapid process to form. You've got to bury something deeply and quickly to protect it from scavengers and decomposition to give it a chance to become a fossil. Typically a rapid process. A few examples of this. Here's a petrified ham. A ham that turned to stone in less than 60 years. I don't know what you do with it, but there it is. Here's a fish fossilized in the act of eating another fish. This is pretty much instantaneous. This poor guy did not get to finish his last meal, which is why I call this fossil the Last Supper, which is maybe <laughs> not appropriate. I understand. I might need to take that one out. Um, <laughs> here's an ichthyosaur fossilized in the act of giving birth, which, again, is pretty much instantaneous. And then speaking of this, the recent formation of these things, we are finding literally all over the globe, over and over again, we're finding soft tissue from dinosaurs still intact in their bones. You can still stretch the tissue, spring back in place. There are oftentimes blood vessels and red blood cells still intact. These organic remnants, like our flesh, are made of mostly water, and they should not last hundreds of years after the creature's death. Maybe thousands. No way millions. It's a great confirmation of the biblical time scale. And I could just go on and on, do whole talks on all these different things. Here's the point for now, though, the point for this morning. If you'll put on those biblical lenses and have a biblical worldview, we've got answers. And real science confirms the Bible's history again and again and again and again. And this should be a great confirmation to the Christian and a great challenge to the skeptic. But here's my point for this morning. What this really is all about is the foundational battle that goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, a battle between God's word and man's word. Either you, either you trust God or you become as your own God. 
a battle and a lie as old as Genesis chapter 3. And to sum up what we've seen foundationally happen in our culture, there's been this foundational shift away from God's word to man's as the authority. So we see this moral revolution happening as a result of this foundational shift. And hear me, we now have multiple generations, both outside and inside the church, who no longer build their thinking on God's word. And we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. So what do we do about it? Good question. Glad you asked. I'll wrap up with these little castle diagrams. They're kind of iconic to answers from Genesis. Ken's been using these for decades. Castle on the right represents Christianity built on the authority of God's word, starting in Genesis 1 to 11, the biblical doctrines and the gospel that comes out of that foundation. Castle over here represents secular humanism, the dominant religion of our culture today, supported by our tax dollars, by the way, and the moral relativism that comes from that worldview. Note a couple of things from the picture that I think are accurate to our culture. First, note the humanists, which are driven by the enemy, whether they realize it or not, are being very clever today. Don't focus your attacks on the deity of Christ or the virgin birth. I mean, attack that, but don't focus there. No, focus your attacks on the foundation because they understand that once this foundation goes, that foundational history in Genesis 1 to 11, what will happen to the rest of the structure? It'll fall. Take out the foundation, the structure will collapse. And then note the Christians. Some have no idea what's going on. You know people like that, right? Some are asleep. Some are fighting each other over typically trivial things like, you know, what color should the carpet be? What hymnal should we use in church? How do you brew the coffee for church, dark or light? The answer is dark. Why are we talking about this? It's biblical. <laughs> you find the answer in Hebrews. Um, <laughs> I just thought of that terrible joke I had to share. I'm so sorry. Uh, anyway, and then actually, there are actually people right here who are destroying their own foundation. This was me years ago saying stuff like, well, you know, maybe God used evolution millions of years. He doesn't worry about it. Just trust in Jesus. Undermining their own foundation, whether they recognize it or not. And by the way, this guy in the picture, look close. He's got on a suit and a tie. That's on purpose represents the majority of our pastors, Christian leaders, and seminary professors who are compromised to one degree or another on this issue. And then I think most of us, we really resonate with this guy right here. We look onto our culture, we see all these social ills, and there's so many more like we put up there. And we think to ourselves, we've got to fight against those things, and we should fight against those things. That is true in truth and in love. But friends, as we do, bear this in mind. Those things, those balloon issues are not the problem. They're the symptoms. They're the symptoms of a loss of biblical authority in our culture today. And for all the time and money we have put forth as Christians fighting those symptoms, is it working? The answer is no. We're becoming less Christian every day. Why isn't it working? Well, because hear me in a real sense, dear Christian, we've been playing checkers. The enemy's been playing chess. We've been attacking symptoms. He's been attacking the foundation of our faith and the faith of the coming generations. You see, when we just fight the symptoms and don't deal with the foundational issue of the authority of God's word versus man's, if we just deal with the symptoms, all we're trying to do then is just to Christianize a culture, to make it more christian most likely just for our comfort. And the Bible doesn't say to Christianize the culture. The Bible says we go and we preach the gospel. We make disciples teaching all that Christ commanded. And as we go proclaim God's word and his gospel and God moves through his spirit, hearts and lives are changed. That changes people from the inside out. That changes our thinking. That'll change our culture. 
You see, we're losing this quote-unquote culture war because we are fighting the symptoms and not the source. So what is the solution? In a word, stand. Stand on biblical authority. Friends, this is a battle over authority, and you cannot defend biblical authority by abandoning biblical authority. We stand on God's word. We take every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ, and we engage the issues of our culture with the truth of God's word and the gospel. And as we engage it, we realize we're not fighting multiple issues. We're fighting multiple symptoms with one core issue, the authority of God's word versus man's. And then we equip ourselves in the coming generations to have a biblical worldview with the answers they need to defend their faith that deal with the symptoms by going to the source. Only by standing on God's word can we effectively defend the faith and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And hear me loud and clear. The answer to the problems of our culture is the gospel. Amen? Amen. Always has been the answer, always will be the answer. But friends, that gospel stands on the authority of God's word, which begins in the book of Genesis. And that's why we care so much and that's why we're so passionate. And that is your short introduction to who we are, why we think all this matters so much. And our passion is not only to proclaim that. I do love proclaiming this message. It's a privilege to do so. But our hope is to equip you with the answers you need where you're at in your spheres of influence, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're at Walmart, Starbucks, wherever, to have the answers to defend the faith and proclaim the gospel in an effective way. A few things I'd really encourage you to check out. First of all, if you're a college student and have no money, go to answersofgenesis.org. All the answers are free. Praise God for free. Anybody, all right? So you can check that out. There are thousands of free articles and videos on the website that you can answer pretty much any question you're thinking about involving origins and really the social issues of our day. So you can check that out. Available to everybody. Answers for kids, teens, and adults, everybody in between. Such a great website. So well done. And then we brought a few of the resources with us. Not too many, but some of them with us. We got those out front at the welcome area. We got these different packs that you can buy. So you can buy the teen and adult pack. Includes those six books. So the book Divided Nation is essentially what you just heard in book form. Of course, expanded a bit. There's actually a QR code. You can download some slides to give this presentation if you felt so inclined to do so, which would be a great thing to do. And the answers book one, giving you a bunch of answers to all sorts of questions. Creation of Babel is a biblical commentary on Genesis 1 to 11. That's very understandable, very easy to read. Gospel Reset, how do we share the gospel in which in the pagan culture we live in today, more of an Acts 17 paradigm instead of Acts 2. And then One Race, One Blood, dealing with the racism issue from a biblical worldview perspective. All great books. So you get that pack. There's also the kids' library pack. One Blood for Kids. Uh, Why Did God Make Me a Girl? Why Did God Make Me a Boy? Two great books. And reinforcing that biblical truth. It's kind of astonishing. We need books on this now. But they are really helpful to teach good, solid biblical truth and combat the demonic dogmas that are coming from our culture today. And those dogmas are demonic on these issues and so many others. Answers uh, for kids, one through eight there, are incredible and in answering so many questions there. It's a real question from a kid with a paragraph answer so well done. And so you can buy either one of those packs or you can buy the super library pack, which includes all those plus two extra books uh, from Ken Ham, our founder, Divine Dilemma, Death and Suffering, this world dealing with the Odyssey from a biblical perspective. And then a flood of evidence, kind of answers book five, if you will. And you're saying to yourself, Brian, that's great, but hey, I need one book. I need the best book in the ministry. What's that book? That one's quick answers to to questions. It's the best book because it is my book. (laughs) 
Maybe not the best, I don't know. But anyway, it gives you short, concise answers. Each answer is less than 500 words. Very concise, very ADD friendly. Good for ages 9 to 90, answering 33 questions on the Bible, science, origins, evolution, so forth and so on. Like who became Mary, age of the earth, carbon-14 dating, dinosaurs in the Bible, all this stuff. Short, snappy, biblical answers. And then I wrote a second book called Quick Answers to Social Issues, where it gives you uh, 37 biblical answers to the issues of life, equality, sexuality, and environment. So answering abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, what about social justice, what about sexuality, homosexuality, the transgender movement, climate change, all those sorts of things. Short, concise, here's the key word, biblical answers. Let me encourage you. we got answers, and they're not hard. Now, you know this in California. They are not popular here or anywhere else, really, in our nation, unfortunately, but they're not hard. And so you have these answers. And so if you're like, you can buy either one of those individually or you can buy them together as a combo, two for 20, which is a really good deal. Or you can swap them out with some of those other packages. If you want to swap the book out and put one of those in, you can do that as well. And then as we wrap up here, check out our magazine. It comes out quarterly. Such a great resource. This is a current issue from a biblical worldview. Uh, got the magazine for the adults, magazines for, and a separate magazine for the kids. And then also a digital magazine comes with that as well. Got our newsletter, AnswersInsider.com. And then Answers.tv, we're so excited about this, our own streaming platform, and like Netflix, Disney Plus, those sorts of things, but it gives you all the answers right on the platform, only 40 bucks for the entire year. And I say, if you've got Netflix or Disney Plus, uh, it's okay. There's time to repent and turn away from that. And they get a safe alternative. Over 6,000 videos on the platform. Such a great resource. Stuff for kids, teens, and adults, everybody in between. If you got questions, feel free to come see me in between services. You can find me on Facebook in particular. But again, the point of all this is not simply to win an argument about any given issue. We want to defend the faith, yes, to obey God's command, but to defend biblical authority and proclaim the gospel effectively. That's what this is really all about. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. We thank you for a chance to gather together under the banner of Christ to worship you. Such sweet worship this morning, to sing your praises, to cry out holy to the holy, holy, holy God. God, you are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of all our strength, all of our thoughts, and all that we do. Lord, sincerely help us, please help us to love you with our hearts, our minds, and our soul, and our strength. Help us, Lord, indeed, to take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. Lord, help us to love you and to love those around us, to love you so much that we boldly proclaim your truth and to love those who are lost so much that we'll engage them, even if it might be uncomfortable, even if it might be uh, it might cause conflict. We try to do so winsome and lovingly, but Lord, we engage because you've told us to and because we want to see people get saved for your glory and their good. Help us, Lord, to stand on your word. Help us, Lord, to defend the faith. Help us, Lord, to exalt the name of Christ to further your kingdom for your glory by your power. We love you and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.